amendments uh, to the Minnesota Rules of Criminal Procedure. And Judge Kyle uh, is here. You're going to go first, huh? I'm going to go first. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Well, may it please the court. Um, my grandfather always said, if you're not early, you're late. So I think I violated that tenant uh, this morning. I was over at the Judicial Center where my where I put the note in my, my calendar. So apologies if we uh, delaying things. We'll take that up later. Thank you. Well, I'm here as the chair of the advisory committee of the Rules of Criminal Procedure, and we're here today to speak in, I'm here today to speak in support of the committee's recommended amendment to Rule 15 to clarify responsibilities of a district court judge uh, during plea negotiations. Other jurisdictions have explicitly addressed judicial participation in plea negotiations in their rules or statutes that govern criminal procedure. And because Rule 15 of the Minnesota Rules of Criminal Procedure do not address judicial participation, the court, this court, referred the matter to the Criminal Rules Committee for consideration of a procedural rule consistent with the court's recent opinion in Wheeler versus State of Minnesota. And with that in mind, our committee recommends amending uh, rule 1504, subdivision 3. Let me briefly start just with a, a short summary of how we got here today, or how we got here today. Uh, it's precedent from this court, the Johnson case from uh, 1955, and then the most recent Wheeler decision. And I'm not telling the court anything you don't know, since these were your opinions. Johnson announced a, a long-held uh, principle that uh, the court should not participate in plea bargaining negotiations. A district court's function is limited to approving or rejecting a plea submitted for judicial acceptance. The bright line rule, I think that we call the bright line rule. And less than a decade later, the Minnesota Rules of Criminal Procedure were promulgated. We now have Rule 1504. It talks about what a prosecutor must do, what defense counsel must do, and addresses what a judge must do, but it's limited. A judge must simply when the plea is entered, either reject or accept the plea of guilty on the terms of the plea agreement. That's all it says. Rule 4, 1504 uh, makes no mention of any involvement by the judge before the entry of that plea, before uh, the acceptance or the presentation of the terms of the agreement. And subsequent cases from this court, the Schmidt decision, Nelson, have signaled a continuing validity of Johnson's rule against judicial participation. And recently, uh, notably, the Court of Appeals has interpreted Johnson to instead mean that although a judge may cannot, quote, become excessively involved in plea negotiations, some judicial involvement is inevitable and acceptable. Um, in Wheeler, the case that brings us here, the court, I believe, uh, felt it was needed to clarify the meaning of participate in judicial uh, in plea negotiations. In that case, the district judge uh, gave unsolicited feedback in an email uh, regarding the substance of the party's proposed plea proposals. The state had a proposal, the defendant had a proposal, and the judge signaled, signaled uh, their report, the judge's report, uh, approval of the state's offer as realistic and its unwillingness to uh, accept the defendant's offer. And the court held that the district court's that the district court improperly participated in the plea negotiation when it provides such unsolicited comments regarding the propriety of the parties' uh, competing settlement offers. Uh, the district court, in, the, in this court's view, uh, the district court crossed Johnson's bright line rule when it examined the propriety of those pleas that had not yet been submitted for judicial acceptance, submitted for judicial acceptance. And Wilson or Wheeler made clear that the district court does not violate Johnson's bright line rule when it inquires about the status of plea negotiations. How's it going? We got a deal? Are we going to trial? That's fine. Or sharing general sentencing practices. You know, what's this the how I typically sentence in a, uh, a barroom fight uh, case? 30 days. I think that was Judge uh, uh, Wernick's example in his statement to the court. Or disclosing non-binding plea and sentencing information at the joint request of the parties. It has to be at the joint request of the parties. Now, because Rule 15 uh, does not address judicial uh, participation, uh, the court in Wheeler referred the matter to the Criminal Rules Committee. 
for consideration of, of a procedural rule. And that is what the committee has done in proposing Rule 1504, Subdivision 3.1. The rule uh, mirrors uh, Wheeler, and that's the committee's proposed amendment, is consistent and mirrors the language of Wheeler. The rule states, and it really comes in two parts. The first part, a district judge should not participate in plea negotiations itself, including by providing unsolicited comments about the propriety of the parties competing settlement offers, or by proposing a plea agreement not presented by the parties. Judge Powell, I have a question for you. Do you think that the rule, um, as proposed with the changes, allows the district court to have enough room to try to manage its caseload, which can become unmanageable, um, so that it's, it's allowing the district court to be as efficient as, as you can? Yeah, I, do, I believe it does. I believe it does, because the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, was very clear. We can still ask, how are you doing? Do we, got a, do we have a resolution or not? You can inquire about the status. That's fine. Uh, you could provide the parties with general information about the type of sentence you might consider in this type of case, whether it's a murder or the barroom bar brawl or a theft case or tax case. You know, here are some general things that I might, I might do without getting their solicitation. Um, it's when you get into that case, when you're providing non-binding information, that's when the, this court has said, and I think the rule mirrors, that situation, the parties need to come to you. When the court goes forward like that, it's a different situation, and it really does cross that, that bright line. At this point, you're no longer uh, you know, waiting for the, uh, it hasn't been submitted yet for judicial acceptance. You're involved in the plea negotiation. They're asking you. Judge right. Kyle, do you have a reaction to Senior Judge Wernick's editorial revisions? And I'm not talking about anything substantive, but just the, his essentially the reordering of the sentences that the Criminal Rules Committee has proposed. His initial uh, yes. proposal? Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get to his supplemental uh, <laughs> sure you will. submission momentarily. Right, right. Yeah, I, I do. Um, you know, the, the order, uh, you know, I understand uh, the judge has put forth those two proposed changes. Um, you know, uh, I think that the, uh, you know, there's some merit to them. I think there's some merit to them, particularly keep, one of them is keeping uh, a record. Okay, if uh, you have a situation where the judge is offering non-binding, uh, requiring uh, a record if the, uh, the judge, uh, well, he's actually talking about requiring a record when you have additional disclosures. When they've, they've come to you, you want to put it out on the, uh, the table. And that, uh, you know, that would be uh, not inconsistent uh, with, with Wheeler. Um, you may, might be willing to, uh, you know, have some more, uh, you know, flexibility, some more uh, openness. Uh, we very clear then, you know, to the defendant what's happening uh, when he says, put it on the record, put it on the record. Now, the first portion that he recommends, and this is where he, he thinks the, uh, the judge's authority to share general sentencing practices uh, that should have to come from the parties. Uh, right now, the rule doesn't require that, and Wheeler doesn't require that. So, um, you know, arguably, uh, that would be inconsistent uh, with Wheeler. But, you know, having done it myself, uh, I can see some, some merit to it. Um, so am I hearing you saying that Senior Judge Wernick's suggested revisions are not so material that the U.S. Chair of the Criminal Rules Committee would want it to go back to the committee for discussion, um, that if we chose to go in that direction, um, you obviously can't bind all the members of the committee, but as, as chair, that would not be of great concern to you. No, no, we'd be happy to, uh, happy to take it up. And uh, we're, you know, during our discussions, some of the members of the committee uh, said, hey, uh, maybe we should go further. Maybe we should offer some additional examples of you know, prohibited conduct and conduct that's permitted, uh, not just the three that uh, the, the court lists. We talked about that, and then ultimately we decided that was not our charge. That would require a, a, deeper, a deeper dive. But uh, Judge Wernick's uh, recommendations are, are not so significant, or in, they're not so uh, changing that uh, we couldn't, couldn't work with them, and I, I think we might even recommend incorporating some of them. Judge Kyle, on the issue of putting them on the record, I mean, I certainly understand the reasoning for that. But in, in practice, um, the speed with which all of that happens, do you see that as having um, any uh, 
that it would result in a less free discussion, I mean, still in line with the rules, but the less free discussion that generally happens in chambers to try to help move things along? Uh, when you're in chambers, you can have a freer discussion. There's no doubt about it. But right now, if I have lawyers back in the chambers talking about a, a resolution, um, whether they're going to re resolve it or not, and I go back on the bench, I will always put on the record, this is what we've talked about. Because I want that defendant, I want to make sure that they understand what was offered by the state, what your lawyer is saying you are agreeable to, and how you can't bridge this. That's fine. You can have trial in a week, but you know, I just want to make sure that I always put that on the, uh, on the record. I think it's, and it doesn't take that much extra time. And I do it not just for that individual defendant, but when I'm in court, I usually got about 50 other people, and they see the lawyers coming back into chambers, some of them. And I just want to make sure everybody understands, you know, nothing secret's going back there. Some cases it's appropriate to talk. This was one, but this is what we talked about. No, no secrets. And, uh, but you don't have anything back in chambers that that discussion is going on the record. I mean, I think what you're saying is really best practice it, and that all district court judges would be wise to yeah. take that practice. But you're not, you're not having a court reporter back in chambers during that discussion. No, I'm not. I, I don't. And I, if we're going to do that, might as well be out in open court. On the record. Do you think there's enough clarity in the line between sharing general sentencing practices and talking about a specific case? Or is that going to cause confusion for parties and district court judges? Hmm. Um, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a line. I think that most judges can, can figure out. Uh, but it it's sometimes can get blurred. You know, the, bar, the ballroom brawl example. Obviously, it's an assault, um, you know, assault one, two, three, whatever it is. And if you're talking about the ballroom brawl, you know, fight, um, uh, if I'm telling them this is what I typically would do in that kind of case, you know, I'm really also talking about the details of that case, right? I mean, I, I didn't pull out the example of what I do in a murder case or what I do in a, a tax evasion case. It's the ballroom brawl. And, uh, and that, that is certainly uh, received by the lawyers. And I think, you know, to Judge Wernick's point, uh, he would say that that is no di there's a very little difference, that that line is, is completely blurred. I think there is a line. You have to be very careful about that line. Um, but when you're talking about non-binding information, now we're getting into criminal histories and guidelines, and, you know, things that are specific to that case. And, um, the parties come in with me on the barroom fight. I might say, you know, yeah, usually I do 30 days, but I need to know more about this defendant. I want to know about the criminal history. You're telling me he's in treatment or she's, you know, that, that might make a consideration whether I think that 30 days is appropriate. So I'm going to want to wait, you know, and see the pre-sentence report. But when I get it, you know, what you tell me, if it's accurate, um, you know, then, yeah, I think I, uh, that's probably what I would do in this kind of a case. And they'll read it. They'll read it as that's likely what they're going to get. And I would then put that out in the record. So, again, Having it on the record, even if you've been in chambers first, uh, uh, is not a bad idea. I Judge, like that, actually. Judge Kyle, though, given, given what you said at the beginning of your comments there, that, that that can be a close call when a judge is simply, or not simply, when a judge is giving unsolicited uh, comments about his or her general sentencing practices. I mean, the concern that Judge Wernick uh, suggests to us is that it, 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 uh, it adds unfair leverage. It kind of puts your thumb on the scale a little bit. It, it, it gives leverage to one, either side's are, you know, bargaining power. And it strikes me that that, that that is true. So I'm guessing what's the downside, if there is any, to making it clear that unless you as the judge get a specific request from the parties um, about your general sentencing practices, you don't, you don't go into that because that line does get so fuzzy and there is that potential for um, putting your thumb inadvertently on the scale and then suddenly, you know, we're into difficulty. So what's the downside to just waiting until, you know, letting the parties request that? Sometimes they don't request, you know. Um uh, is that, what's wrong with that? Yeah, I guess is well, what I'm asking. And I don't think there are, quite frankly, to be honest, that there's much of a downside. In fact, I do not offer up anything unless they come to me and ask for it. I don't 
advertise what I likely were going to do. So you're already doing that. Well, but I think a lot of judges are doing it. I think I'm, I'm you know, alone in, in that regard. I, don't, I think that's just a good, I think there is a, a fear among judges to get too involved, but uh, there's a, when you feel, when they come to you, they're asking for information, and so that just does, that does feel, makes the whole thing feel differently. Uh, and then I don't think you're so much putting your, your finger on the scales because they need to know where that finger is going to go because ultimately you're the one that's going to do the sentencing, and they need to have some you know, straight, straight information. Yeah. So to your answer, uh, probably not too much of a downside, to be honest, and that would certainly be something our committee could, could wrestle with. We've got prosecutors, county, city attorneys on our uh, committee. We've got defense counsel from the state public defender's office, uh, local counsel, lawyers, uh, some private lawyers, a couple judges, and some administrators. So we've got a good group, and uh, we can probably wrestle with this if needed. Now... Judge Wernick has submitted also a, a supplemental um, statement, and I just want the court, the committee has no objections to the court uh, considering it, um, and uh, uh, he apparently no longer supports the committee's uh, proposal, and that's certainly his, um, his, his right, and I don't want to suggest that I know what he's, he's going to be up here in just a minute, so he'll tell you exactly what he's, what he's thinking, but uh, it appears that uh, his argument is that the court should not uh, use Wheeler as a constraint with the Rules Committee, that we should, the Rules Committee should not be cons constrained by Wheeler when we're making our amendment, which we did. We didn't go beyond Wheeler. We quoted it. So we didn't even go off, uh, offline at all. We stuck very close to it. And he's critical of that. Now, and I think he's got some concerns about, you know, Wheeler's findings about what district court can do and concerns about what participation means, that if you you know, are talking about non-binding plea and sentencing information, if you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, general sentencing practices, you really are participating. I'm not sure I agree with that, but, and, and the court had a different view, perhaps, but, um, you know, that's okay. Uh, as a current chair of the Rules Committee, um, it's not mar our view, to, it's not my view to critique the court and your decision. You know, we were given a mandate to follow Wheeler. If you think a rule should be is appropriate, a rule change, fine. We didn't have to. You didn't say we had to, uh, but we looked at it. And I think the, uh, both the, the, the judges, uh, the prosecutors, and the defense counsel on our committee all unanimously felt some clarity would be helpful. You know, some clarity would be helpful. We don't get a lot of appellate decisions, not from this court, not from the Court of Appeals. And I think if you talk to most district court judges, they're never really sure about it. I mean, you can be safe and do nothing, but, you know, that this is the state system, and there's a lot of volume. And, you to, know, to be clear, the order of the court in, in Wheeler gave the Criminal Rules Committee the option of not recommending a rule change. That's true. So what I hear you saying is it was the unanimous view of the committee made up of a variety of constituencies that Wheeler should in some way be codified by way of a rule. Yes, and our, that's our committee's view. And like I said, there were a few members that felt maybe we should do more, we should go beyond. I, I, you know, I think I mentioned that earlier, but in discussing it, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable that my committee uh, is, is behind Wheeler. Um, you know, if it comes back to consider any additional uh, tweaks or some of Judge uh, Wernick's uh, consider uh, his uh, recommendations, you know, we'd, we'd certainly take that up. But uh, I didn't get a sense from our committee that we had concerns about Wheeler, that uh, we felt it was, was helpful on both sides of so the prosecutors and defense counsel. Now, we've talked about Judge Wernick. He's, got, he's going to be up here in just a minute. We also have the State uh, Bar Association, uh, and uh, they are here uh, opposing uh, the, the amendment. Uh, it's the state, uh, the criminal law section, which is also made up of prosecutors and defense lawyers. So that's a, yeah, I think it was, a, they referred to it as a bipartisan group, and that's, uh, I think that's probably true. Um, and I've been to those meetings in the past. They view that uh, Wheeler is kind of an, an outlier, kind of an exception, and uh, wouldn't really help judges by codifying it or giving this additional uh, information. And uh, I, you know, the the rules committee, I, I we we did, we would disagree, and uh, as the chair, I would disagree. Uh, um, I think it does address some loopholes, uh, not loopholes, but just uh, lack of clarity from Rule 15. We've got case law, but the judges and the lawyers should also see rules in place and. We should have a rule that mirrors what the case law is, and I think Wheeler does better than any other uh, opinion so far is really laying out 
what a judge can do and can't do. And so uh, we don't think it's uh, repetitive or it's an outlier. You know, you could say it's clear that that district judge overstepped their bounds. It was in an email. You know, most of these things don't happen by email, right? You're back in chambers. Uh, there's no record uh, at all. Uh, so maybe if we had more email, uh, we'd have more cases up at the appellate court. So the line is a little grayer than uh, we might like. So I, just because we don't have a lot of appellate decisions or a lot of record of what happens in the chambers doesn't mean it's not an issue. So um, in our view, uh, Wheeler uh, is not an outlier, but it really gives us some uh, good uh, uh, prescription as to how to go forward. And uh, I would urge the court uh, to support the uh, rule amendment. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Kyle. Um, Mr. Keller, we'll take you next, and then we'll take Senior Judge Wernick. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Max Keller, M-A-X-K-E-L-L-E-R. I am the immediate past chair of the Criminal Law Section of the Bar Association. Thank you for allowing us to give our comments. I was actually hoping to be edified by Judge Wernick, so I'm going to have to sit in silence um, while he makes his comments. Um, unfortunately, we're not having a colloquy here. We're not having like a committee hearing where all three of us could, could discuss it with you seven at the same time. Um, I think the feeling of the Bar Association is that this is already the rule under Johnson. The problem is when you read these cases like Schmidt and Nelson, it says, do not participate, do not participate. And as this court said in Wheeler, well, what is the definition of participation? Um, I'm troubled that perhaps there isn't really an understanding of really what goes on down in the trenches. Um, <clears throat> and there's a feeling sometime in the trenches that, that um, there's one trial court judge, one former trial court judge um, amongst this august group of seven, and that's the, by virtue of the governors, plural, the, the it could be, though, counsel, that there is a great understanding of what goes on in the trenches, and uh, there's a, a, um, a call for a change in what's going on in the trenches. Well, that, that kind of gets to the next point, is that is it an outlier or not? Now, Judge Kyle is exactly right when he says these emails are not going on. The emails that are going on is... Judge Kyle or Judge Warnick's clerk, and to me, I think it's useful to actually speak in examples because there's very few examples, and to me, Wheeler is a big generality, and it doesn't, it doesn't help very much because it's too general. If you're trying to tell people what to do based on Wheeler, it doesn't, it doesn't help very much. So what really goes on, of course, is Judge Kyle's law clerk would email me and the prosecutor and say, you're the number one case for next Monday, because I do have a case in front of a judge in Hennepin County that's either the number one or number two case and I, for next Monday. And I emailed them, I told them, we do have an agreement to settle this. They would never be emailing me and asking, like, well, what are you guys discussing? Do you think that maybe you could reduce it down to second degree murder? Uh, would the state agree to reduce it from from a second degree intentional to second degree unintentional. I've never seen that, and they should never be doing that. Um, and I think that comports with what Wheeler says, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily get into all that detail. I'm, I'm a little concerned about the idea that a district court could not provide information about general sentencing practices unless it were upon the request of the parties. And this is a question that Justice Hudson was asking of Judge Kyle. To me, it would be disingenuous or dishonest if, if Judge Kyle or anybody knew that 
say we're discussing a sentence because a lot of this, in some respects, it may apply more to non-felonies and Wheeler is a felony and, and that's why what the judge was doing in Wheeler is more, it's unbelievable really. I think anyone who read it would say this is unbelievable because you'd never be doing this. Uh, <clears throat> if, if Judge Warnick or Judge Kyle knew that I'm talking to the prosecutor and I said we have a gross misdemeanor DWI, the mandatory minimum is 30 days, um, the statute says you can serve the last 28 days in electronic home monitoring if the judge allows. These are the kind of cases that come before judges all the time. And in Hennepin County and Ramsey County, you would get electronic home monitoring all the time. They don't have to do that, but that's, that's their thing. Ramsey County and Hennepin County give people electronic home monitoring for the last 28 days. If you go to certain counties, certain judicial districts, they don't do electronic home monitoring. So. If I was in one of those districts, and let's say Judge Kyle was there and not in Ramsey County, and if he knew that we were talking about my client's going to serve the last 28 days on electronic home monitoring, and he knows that like certain counties in the 10th Judicial District don't do that, they don't give electronic home monitoring on DWIs, it would be disingenuous of him not to say that, well, I'm sorry, but we don't do that here in Sherburne County. Um, Council, what, uh, Mr. Keller, what's, what, again, what would be the downside, though, if you're representing that client in the 10th Judicial District, and presumably you've done, as counsel, you've done your homework, and you know that it's unlikely that a 10th District judge is going to give your client the last 28 days on home monitor, home electronic, electronic monitoring, wouldn't you ask and what's wrong with requiring, as opposed to having the judge step in, what's the downside? And wouldn't, wouldn't, isn't there some expectation that, is count, that counsel would ask about that? Well, this again, Justice Hudson, that, thank you for that question. This again goes to kind of the practicalities, because I tried to think this through of how exactly this would go. So one of two things would happen is, we either come back and talk to Judge Collar, we talk to you in chambers if you're the trial court judge, and we would say, well, Mr. Smith is going to plead guilty, and he's already got two days of credit, so he'd be sentenced to 30 days, 28 days is, is electronic home monitoring, two days is credit. Now, if we went back there and we said that to you, and we're in the 10th Judicial District, and you don't do electronic home monitoring in the 10th Judicial District, then you, if that's our agreement, then Presumably, you would say then, well, that's all great, but we don't do EHM here in the 10th Judicial District. Now, let's just suppose that we didn't come back and tell you what our deal is, because in some counties, people do that all the time, and some counties, people never go back to chambers, which is one of the weird things about all this is that part of this is about culture, and people have been around in a lot of different counties and judicial districts. They know that the culture of different counties and judicial districts is widely disparate. Um, so let's just suppose that we're right up here then, and I say, well, Your Honor, this is our agreement then. Then at that point, you or Judge Kyle, whoever it is, would say, well, no, that's all great, but we don't do that. So, you know, your client would have to do the last 28 days in jail because that's how we do it then. Then at that point, I would say, ah, uh, and I'd say, well, I'm sorry, uh, we're going to have to recall this then, Your Honor. So that's only one of two ways it can go is it can either be a discussion off the record which then could be repeated on the record, as Judge Kyle said, which I do like the idea of transparency that people don't think there's all these secret things going on in the back because a lot of people do think that. Um, secret things that people don't want aired in public, which of course we're not afraid of that being aired in public, except maybe what I'm going to say um, uh, to touch upon that. But, but to me, Justice Hudson, that's the way it would be is either you're going to tell me my error back there or you're going to tell me my error up here. But either way, that plan is not going to fly because we don't do that X in this place, you know. Um, I've represented a lot of people on appeals <clears throat> um, and in post-conviction relief. And one of the issues that comes up kind of goes with all this in a manner because when Judge Kyle is talking about the secret stuff going on, supposedly secret stuff in the back, which we would all say, well, there isn't really anything secret about that. There's no problem with putting it all out on the record here. The problem is, is there are defendants who 
we're saying, and I think some of this is true, that their attorney did say this to them, that their attorney went back there <clears throat> into chambers and they said, um, you know, Judge X said maybe you should waive your right to a jury because if we try this to the judge, you know, there's a very good chance that um, uh, they'd find you not guilty because the evidence sounds kind of weak, but of course the judge would have to hear all the evidence. Now, sometimes a judge might actually say that, and I don't think there's necessarily anything impermissible about that. But what I'm actually thinking about is when the judge didn't actually say that and the defense attorney is basically uh, coercing people or tricking people into waiving their right to a jury because I believe that I've represented Counsel, people. Counsel, what does that have to position. do with the issue before us? I think you're ranging a bit far afield. Could you connect that to whatever point you're making regarding this rules proposal? Sure, Justice Law, I appreciate that. So basically the point is is we want transparency on on what goes back there because if you have transparency then no one can say well well judge Lilhog told me this because then we come up here and we say this is what the discussions were in chambers so the se the section's position is we don't need the rule but if we do have a rule then i would i suspect that properly that you would be supporting senior judge wernick's uh statement that that these kinds of discussions should be in some way documented? That's right, because I think that transparency is good because it takes away the idea that some people have that there's some secret stuff that's going on back there and they made some kind of secret deals. And when you put it all out in the open, then, then people should be able to conclude that um, this is what they said they talked about there. Nobody said that Judge Lillehog promised that you're gonna get um, four months work release instead of a 41-month sentence, which was the argument in one of the cases I read that was cited in Wheeler, I believe. The, one of the problems that I have is, let's see if we can get the right page on here. It's on 566 and 567 of Wheeler. That's the Northwest Second page number. Um, the judge in Wheeler really was an outlier, and they say that bad, bad facts make bad law. It's not bad law to say that a judge shouldn't be doing this, but our concern is, is that um, in putting this down on paper that judges are gonna be scared to say anything, including to share general sentencing practices and perhaps judges are gonna think that this is some type of change in the law or some interpretation where my interpretation would be. So counsel, what, you're, what I'm hearing you say is that you think it's gonna chill the um, ability to negotiate. Well, that's correct. And, and I, do wanna, I do wanna talk about that because I have three minutes left according to this clock. I'm, I'm kind of a little bit baffled by, by this part of Wheeler because what you just said, Justice McKeague, is negotiate. So, of course, I don't negotiate with the court. I negotiate with the other party. So it's not clear to me, in fact, it appears to be the opposite of this in Wheeler. If this is the prosecutor, I negotiate with the prosecutor. Then we come before you and we say, this is our agreement. Now, the court, of course, can reject the agreement. That's totally fine. But the court can't just sua sponte modify it. And basically, in Wheeler, the state was proposing X, the defense was proposing Y, and the judge said, well, I don't think really like this is a case that should be disposed as a Y. And Wheeler says, most of this feedback would not have been participation, I'm reading, quoting here, um, if it had been provided at the joint request of the parties in that event, it would have been appropriate for the court to reject Wheeler's proposed charge of second-degree manslaughter and proposed sentence. And then on the next physical page, which is page nine, but it's still the same Westlaw page 567, it says, but one part of the judge's email would have been problematic even if the parties had requested the court's involvement, which was the court's added feedback about, quote, a prison term the parties can agree on something in the range of X to 240 months. 
Now, what I would say is the first part is just as problematic as the second part because the judge has no business weighing in on this until the parties say, this is our agreement. Then the judge rejects it or not. This is saying if the parties ask the judge, the judge could weigh in on it. I don't agree with that because that is inserting yourself into the negotiations. It doesn't make sense if I was negotiating that I go to some third party who, yes, they can ultimately accept it or reject it. But we don't go to a third party and say, well, he offered me a murder one, and I want a second-degree murder. So what do you think about that, Judge? But that doesn't, that doesn't <laughs> make counsel, sense to me. Counsel, it sounds like it would never be a problem for you because you wouldn't make that joint request to the court. Well, I would agree with that. It doesn't make any sense to me that, the, to me, the parties would never make that request because that's not negotiating. That's asking the judge to decide what do you think this person should be found guilty of. The parties either agree that, let's say, you're going to reduce a first-degree murder to second-degree intentional, or if the parties don't agree, you have a trial. Right? That's how it works. You don't ask the judge, like, well, what do you think this person is guilty of? What do you, what do you think you should plead guilty to? Right? That's not what the process is. <clears throat> so we'd ask that you not promulgate an amendment because we, were, we are worried about chilling, as, as Justice McKeague said. But if you do, then we're all in favor of maximum transparency. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Senior Judge Warnick, we've been talking a lot about you. Now you have your chance. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you very much. <clears throat> and Chief Justice Gilday, and may it please the court, I am so sorry that I came in late. It's my fault. I had 11 o'clock on my mind, and I should have known better how the court operates its calendar when you're hearing these matters. I feel a little bit like the politician who said, famously, I actually voted for it before I voted against it. And Senator Kerry uh, never could get over that. He got skewered for doing that. And I am prepared <laughs> if you, you know, I don't intend to talk really anymore about what I put in my supplementary statement, except well, the, I'd be the worst to, thing would be yeah. uh, to be arguing for a position you didn't believe in. So oh. we appreciate your candor and, and I will make a motion eventually to accept your supplemental filing. Thank you. Thank you very much, Justice Little Hog. So as I said, I don't, I don't intend to go into more about what I said in my supplementary statement. Um, but I am asking the court, in the bottom line, I'm asking the court that this should go back to the Rules Committee. And I hope the Rules Committee would not feel constrained by the dictum in Johnson and Wheeler. But procedurally, I don't know how they could not be. I, I think I'm, I'm taking a, a little bit of poetic license, I understand, in asking uh, the court to send it back without that constraint. But this is what I'd like to do this morning. With the court's indulgence, I would like to explain why I think the Johnson dictum does not test stand the test of time in Minnesota district courts. Second, I would like to suggest that any new rule governing the judge's role in plea bargaining should recognize that the judge may facilitate plea agreement discussions in its capacity as a manager of its calendar, but that a judge should not use that authority to direct the lawyers to any particular result. And third, if time permits, I would like to address what the word non-binding should mean in the context of a judge offering non-binding sentencing information. This is a distinct issue from the facts in Wheeler, in my opinion. In the Wheeler case, uh, neither party was asking the court to question the wisdom or the validity of the Johnson dictum. The state public defender's office didn't want you to question Johnson because the more Johnson controlled, the more likely they were to win the case. And the state wasn't asking you to revisit Johnson because they assumed that the Court of Appeals uh, permissible, impermissible uh, distinction, that, that was consistent with the Johnson case. So let me suggest two reasons why the Johnson dictum should now be abandoned. In the 1960s, plea bargaining was just emerging from its kind of secret source. And 
so it's coming out of the shadows and it's coming out of the shadows at a time when the judge's role was considered to be that of someone who should let the lawyers litigate the case, determine what the issues are, and then go to the judge and have the judge decide those issues that they tee up for the judge. And once the judge decides the issue, is it's back to the lawyers. Fact, counsel, in that era, there was a substantial debate about whether or not plea bargaining should even be permitted. Correct. And, and I think the commentators were being very cautious at that time about plea bargaining, and they're saying judges stay out of it um, for the reasons I've just, I think for the reasons I've just said, and because they were also very cautious about plea bargaining. So one of the things that's changed, I think, since that time is that there is an increasing body of opinion that judges need to be managers of their cases, especially in a system where they're blocked cases early in the case. And so in, in my career, I have seen this body of, of opinion expand in the fourth district. I started in 2002, I was assigned to the criminal division. At that time, all of our cases, criminal cases, except for murder and sex cases, were on a master calendar, which means that the case is not assigned to a judge until the day of trial, when the case is referred out to a judge. And so those judges really never had the responsibility of managing a case from beginning to end. In 2004, I go over to family court. At that time, it had been, I think just a few years before that, all family court cases were being blocked to uh, judges, the judicial and referees. The judicial officer that got assigned the case at the beginning, that's the judge or the, or the referee that's gonna try the case. And the first appearance before the judicial officer was called the Initial Case Management Conference, ICMC. And so the idea is to get the parties talking about how to resolve this case, what are the issues in dispute, factual or legal, how can we get those issues resolved early, and how can the resolution of those er issues lead to an early settlement of the case. In 2006, in the 4th District, excuse me, we started blocking serious felony cases. And the cases were blocked to the judge at the first appearance. The judge hearing the first appearance calendar for that week kept all the first appearance cases in that judge's block. And the rules were this. You set a status conference within 28 days of the first appearance. At the status conference, the judges or the, the lawyers have to have read all the discovery. By the time of the status conference, if the lawyers can, they make offers to each other. They get before the judge on the status conference, it's in chambers, and the judge says, what's this about? What's your offer? What's your offer? What are the obstacles to settlement? Is there anything that I can do to help you resolve this case early? So for example, and I'm taking on the role here of a facilitator. For example, we have the Wheeler case where charge is second degree intentional murder, Prosecutor's willing to go down to second degree unintentional murder. Defense wants a manslaughter. So I could say, well, do you know that if you tried the case, would you be entitled to a manslaughter instruction? And maybe the lawyers have a dispute about that. So you have the lawyers brief the issue about that and bring it to you as soon as you can. Maybe you give them a couple weeks just to give you the cases. And then you can make a preliminary ruling. And then that advances the ball on them being able to settle the case. And the best practice is then you go out into the courtroom and now you're meeting the defendant, not on a mass first appearance calendar, but now the defendant's in your courtroom. Hello, Mr. Defendant, my name is Mark Warnick, I will be your judge. The lawyers and I have been talking about, or the lawyers talking in my office about how they can settle the case. And this issue has come up about whether you would get a manslaughter instruction I try to talk more plain English about how you would get a manslaughter instruction if you took the case to trial. And I think if we could resolve that early, that might help the lawyers come to an agreement. So I'm going to continue this case for two weeks. And in the meantime, each lawyer is going to submit something to me. And I, on the basis of what the law requires, I'm going to make a decision about whether or not I think 
I mean, in the scenario that you've laid out, yes. do you think the judge is participating or not participating in plea negotiations? Well, participating, in my mind, is a huge umbrella of a word. It is a big word. So, yes, I think the judge is participating. I think the judge is participating by facilitating. That's how I interpret the word participate. Okay? And I think a lot of people would say, I mean, that's how I speak the word, and, and that's how I understand it. So... I do this, and the other, uh, uh, Judge Kyle mentioned this too, and Mr. Keller, by going on the record and telling the defendant what you're doing, the defendant who may feel very alienated from the system can see that at least there's some neutral guy up there watching over what the lawyers are doing when they're trying to settle the case. So that's one change, I think, since Johnson, that kind of facilitating role for a judge or manager. The second change is that in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court recognizes that the right to effective assistance of counsel includes the right to effective assistance of counsel during plea negotiations. And I think this, you know, that case, those cases from the U.S. Supreme Court don't dictate what we do here, but I think it, again, raises the, the specter of plea bargaining taking on this more open role and a judge now can watch over and make sure the defense lawyer is not doing something based on some serious misinterpretation of law. So when does facilitation that I've just described turn into something else? I said that by using our power to facilitate, we should not use it to try to, to direct the lawyers in any particular direction. Now, I don't know how true that is in family court when judges get involved with settlement discussions. I know in family court, we would er early in the case, we can send the parties off to what we call an early neutral evaluator. And that person is a neutral, but the person is also authorized to try to move the parties in a particular direction to settle the case, a direction where the uh, evaluator thinks best. And so um, I don't think that is a proper rule for a judge uh, as a facilitator during plea discussions. So, for example, if you have a case where the prosecutor is offering 10 and the uh, defense is offering 1 and they want some feedback, what do you think about this judge? I don't think the judge should say, well, the 1 is unacceptable and the 10 is realistic. I mean, think about what, what would the judge go in the courtroom to tell the defendant about what, what just got said? I mean, could the judge really say to the defendant, I've just rejected your plea offer. Uh, I, think the, I think the 10 is more realistic. I don't think the judge could, could keep the kind of neutrality that, did, that the judge should have, at least as perceived by the defendant. When the judge does that, I, I'm afraid the judge would, or the defendant would perceive the judge as somebody who's on the prosecutor's team. So I don't think that should be allowed. So I think that this issue should go back to the Rules Committee for further study and to consider whether facilitation is a proper role and recognize it as such and put whatever other, what limits you can. Let me talk about non-binding sentencing information because I said this presents a different problem. Um, I am, the, the Anyanwu case represents the problem I'm now talking about and that's where lawyers don't agree on what's gonna happen. They just don't agree. And so the defense lawyer says, judge, my client's considering a straight plea. What do you think you would do on sentencing if he just pled guilty to everything he is charged with? And so the Court of Appeals jurisprudence seems to suggest that the judge can make non-binding sentencing remarks or, or comments about it. And the word non-binding can have two different meanings, in my opinion. The first meaning is non-binding means that if the judge says, you know, I'm inclined to do this, or I typically do this in certain cases, and obviously the defense is looking for some sign of leniency. I'm inclined to be lenient in these kind of cases. But if I'm not, you can't withdraw your guilty plea because this is not binding. I am free to sentence you as I think I should. That's one definition. The second, though, is that the judge makes some assessment, and then the judge says, I am free to change my mind at the time of sentencing, but because I know that you have considered and relied on what I said in making your decision to plead guilty, Mr. Defendant, if I decide to change my mind, I will tell you, and I will let you withdraw the guilty plea. 
under a fair and just standard. And I will only do that if the prosecutor agrees to do that. And I would get the prosecutor on record to agree that he's letting me make this assessment and he agrees that the defendant could withdraw the guilty plea if I don't follow the assessment. Judge, Judge I hear you saying that non-binding may mean different things. And yes. Perhaps the idea that non-binding is ambiguous in some respect has merit. Um, but looking at the proposal the committee has made, would you agree that the intent of the proposal is the judge can disclose general sentencing practices or other information not specific to this case? That's the way I interpret what I think the committee is trying to do with the phrase or other non-binding plea and sentencing information. I interpreted, well, it's... I don't remember not specific to this case. Maybe I missed it. No, no, it doesn't say that. It just says the judge may disclose general sentencing practices or other non-binding plea and sentencing information, period. Just a little hug. Let me answer that in two ways. First, to say not specific to this case, then that's just like saying it's non-binding. Now, I'm not saying what I do in this case, but generally in cases like this. So I don't think that adds to the discussion. And I will tell you, Unless I have this situation that I've just described where the prosecutor's all on board with me letting the plea be withdrawn if I don't follow, I advise new judges and I still, the one thing the fourth district has me coming back to do is advise judges on, on how to handle this, this onyano problem. I say to judges, don't make any remarks about your possible sentence. Just keep quiet. Unless you know for sure what you're gonna do. Because you don't wanna signal leniency and then hammer the defendant. Yes. Um, Judge Warning, first of all, good to see you. Um, your, just, your hair is very long. Yes, it's nice. it's re- um, five years of retirement almost. <laughs> One of my questions is, do you um, agree that if the judge makes statements as you have described, the problem is that the defendant's going to hold on to the part that sounds attractive yes. and kind of not hear the rest of it? Yes, that's one problem. And here's the other problem. Because the defendant is going to hold on to the part that's attractive. Let's say the judge says this before he reads a PSI and sees the victim impact statement. Okay? Now the judge reads it and, and says, oh, my goodness, I think this guy should go to prison. Oh, but look what I told the defense lawyer. You know, my reputation's going to go south. And so now, now the judge's independence has been compromised. Thank you. Thank you. Um, All right. This matter submitted. I want to thank all of our presenters um, for being here today and their comments and all the members of both rules committees and as well as the staff to the rules committees. Thanks for all of your help and input uh, on these matters and the hearing uh, on the proposed amendments to the Minnesota Rules of Civil Procedures concluded. This matter submitted. We're in recess. What did I say?